Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Some people turn planning into a sport. I mean, have you met some of these people where uh, the uh, checklist is their ball, the calendar is their glove, the Excel spreadsheet is the bat, and they just go to town. I mean, these are the kinds of people who purchase their Christmas presents in July, who have them wrapped in September and who execute the plan on their calendar to an absolute T. Now, if you just leaned over to your spouse and said, well, at least I'm not that bad. (laughs) Yes, you are. And if you don't know anybody who's like this, you might be (laughs) that person. And the rest of us, the, the, the normal ones, we don't like you all that much and here's why. Secretly, we're jealous. I mean, we wish that we weren't up at midnight on Christmas Eve wrapping presents, but we are. Can I get an amen? I have a feeling that the year 2020 Christmas might be a little bit different. We all might be off of our plan just a little bit, but those of you who are planners will be more on top of it, I'm sure. Are you ready? for Christmas. Uh, That's a a sentiment, a question that is often asked around this time of year. And usually what we mean by that is, are the presents purchased? Are the the meals planned? Are the parties organized and the get-togethers on the calendar? Are, Are you ready for Christmas? And yet, my guess is there are Christmases in the past that you've gotten to the end of where you had the right presents and you had the right parties and you had the right things on the calendar and you sort of executed it the way that you wanted to, but you got to the end of Christmas feeling like you got run over by Christmas rather than celebrating Christmas. So maybe, maybe there's more to planning for Christmas than just getting the right presents purchased and getting the right things on the calendar. Maybe, maybe planning for Christmas has more to do with preparing our heart than it does with purchasing the right presents. See, that's the invitation that we have in front of us this Christmas year. And and it's this uh, story in the Gospel of Luke that's going to invite us to really, truly prepare for Christmas. See, Luke did all of this research and he tried to figure out the story and the, the movement of Jesus so that he could retell it and record it for us. And he begins his story of the the birth of Christ and the life of Christ by telling us how people were called to prepare for his coming.
See, we all know that, that preparation is important. And that's exactly where Luke begins his gospel account. He wants to help people prepare for the coming of the Christ. And in doing so, he helps us learn how to prepare for Christmas. See, Luke was a researcher. He was a doctor, but then he became a researcher to try to figure out who this Jesus was and the movement that he started, and then to do his best to record it for people so that they could read and study for themselves. And listen to the way he began talking about Jesus. In verse five, here's what he says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and Herod was sort of this puppet king for the Roman Empire. He, he was at least viewed by his people as a sellout. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. See, see Luke begins uh, introing Jesus by talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth. He gives us a lot of information about them. He says that they're both from priestly lines. He says that they're blameless and righteous, that they, they follow the law. But then in verse 7, if you see this first word, at least in the ESV translation, it's the word but. But they didn't have children uh, we'll learn later that Elizabeth viewed this as a reproach before people. She was stricken by God, and that's the way that people in the ancient world often viewed barrenness, is that God had looked upon them and seen them unworthy or um, ashamed in some way. And so, you see this contrast. They're blameless, they're righteous, and yet they're barren. They keep operating in faithfulness to God, even though they're frustrated, even though it seems like God has let them down. It's this word, but, that, that contrasts their faithfulness and what feels to them like God's failure. And yet, Zechariah is still saying the prayers. He's still singing the songs. He's still going through, in many ways, going through the motions of religion. But there's this deep-seated doubt in his heart and in his soul. God, are, are you, are you going to come through for me? God, will, will you be good? God, will you provide? God, are you able to do a miracle? My guess is that some of you listening to this message are in that exact same place sort of going through the motions of religion, even maybe feeling like, God, I've been faithful to you, and yet I don't see your hand moving in the way that I want it to. What we're going to find out later is that Zechariah doubts that God can do what God has said he will do. In many ways, he has what Paul will write to Timothy as a, a form of godliness, but denying its power. And I wonder if some of us are in that same spot today. Well, let's keep reading because we're going to see the way that God breaks into Zechariah's life. Listen to what he says, verse 8. Now, while he was serving as a priest before the Lord when his division was on duty. See, back then, the, the priests were broken into 24 orders. And each order would serve two times each year for a whole week, from Sabbath to Sabbath. Verse 9. 
according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Uh, Burning of incense was typically the, the morning prayers, and then they would be followed by evening sacrifices. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 30, verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Because typically when the priests finished burning the incense and offering morning prayers, they would come out and they would bless the people with the Aaronic blessing that's found in Numbers chapter 6. Verse 11. And there appeared to him, so he's in the sanctuary, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We'll find out later that this angel is Gabriel and his prayers, he says, your prayers, Zechariah, have been heard by the Almighty God. As if to say, Zechariah, what you've been asking for will come to pass. And here's where we find out that Zechariah is sort of just going through the motions of religion, sort of robotic religion. He doubts. An angel delivers a message to him And Zechariah's response is, prove it. (laughs) Prove it. I'm not sure I can believe that this is true. And here's what we find out. Zechariah is going to have a son. His name is John. It's where we're introduced to John. John the Baptist, you may know him as. And in a non-liturgical church, John can sort of get pushed to the periphery of the Christmas story. But what we see here is that John is a central part of the preparation for Christmas, for, for the Christ. I've never seen him on any Advent calendars. And yet, John is, I would argue, second to Jesus, the central character of Advent. In fact, he introduces us to this season, and as we keep reading, we'll find out why. Verse 14. And you, angel speaking to Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his, being John's, birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So we see three things about John. First, he's a, a forerunner. He's, he lays the groundwork for Jesus. Second, his job is going to be to turn people back, or two for the first time, to the Lord. Third, his job is to make a people ready to receive their king. See, in verse 17, that word prepared means measured out. Or, or following the blueprint. Isn't it interesting that we, as a people, we need to be prepared? We need to be ready? 
That the Messiah couldn't just show up. He actually needed somebody to come before him to lay the groundwork. The human heart is is like that. It's like a, a table that needs to be set. A meal that needs to be prepared. After all, it's, it's really hard to receive guests. Think of receiving guests into your home when you're not ready for them. I think of one of my favorite Christmas movies, Christmas Vacation, where Cousin Eddie and his family show up unannounced and the chaos that ensues thereafter. The human heart is the same way. It's hard to receive when we aren't ready. And John's role in the Christmas story is to help people get ready for the Christ. He initiates Advent, and Advent means coming, coming. Advent is a time of of waiting, that is to say, preparing. It's why watchmen who look and wait for the dawn are often an image associated with this season on the church calendar. See, Advent teaches us, and I'd invite you to write this down, that readiness is essential for receiving. Readiness is essential for receiving. And if that was true for people 2,000 years ago, the first coming of Christ, maybe, just maybe, it's true for us today also. Maybe we need to be ready this Christmas if we're going to receive. Maybe we need to be ready if we're going to enter into something a little bit different. Maybe we need to be prepared if we really want to encounter. I mean, what if, what if, what if, what if we only experience God to the extent that we're ready to receive him. So if that's true, if we experience God to the extent that we're ready to receive him, You might be asking, well, how do I prepare? How do I get ready? Great question. And as we continue to read in Luke's gospel about John, who's the forerunner to Christ, we're going to see how we get ready. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me again. It says this about John. It says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, if there's one word that could describe John's ministry, it might be turn, or turning, or preaching to people, calling them to turn their hearts back to God. In the Greek, it could be the word return, return, come, come home. And John preached that message from the very beginning. Listen to the way that Matthew records what might be considered his first sermon. Here's what John the Baptist said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, literally, uh, turn your mind or change your mind or rethink the way that you're thinking. But God's, or John's call for God's people to prepare or to turn wasn't a gentle call. It wasn't, it wasn't a wake-up call like the one that I give to my kids in the morning when I come into their room and I sort of start to pull back their covers and I whisper into their ear, I love you, it's time to get up. 
That was not John's approach. He makes people's hair stand on end. Listen to his message in Luke chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. Here's what John said, or says about John, and then he says, He went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I don't know if you have Handel's Messiah ringing in your ears right now, but I certainly do. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming or flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. <laughs> you may be wondering, why is a character so opposed to Christmas cheer such a distinct part of the Christmas story? Well, I think one of the things we begin to learn from John is that preparation can be painful. It stings a little bit. Uh, preparation for the Christ and therefore preparation for Christmas, it, it, it demands some self-reflection. It, it demands that we look at our shortcomings, at our darkness, at our sin, at our failure. It, it demands that we name it. And if it doesn't sting a little bit, we probably aren't preparing adequately yeah, we have to be willing to prepare for the Christ in a way that um, causes us to change, to be transformed and shaped. It forces us to look at our lives to see where we're living out of sync with the way of the kingdom and with the heart of the king. I wonder what John would say to us today. I'm guessing his message would be the same. If you really want to experience Christ this Christmas, you've got to turn your heart. You've, you've got to repent and turn. If you, would you write this down? Repentance is the way that we ready our heart for the Christ. Repentance, what John's talking about here, this, this turn, rethink the way you're thinking. Turn your life over and allow God to shine a light on the dark places. That is the way that we prepare for the Christ. So if you're wondering what areas of your life to bring under examination, we just keep reading. Listen to what Luke wrote. He said, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children. Now, this is a quote directly out of Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. And one of the things that strikes me is that faith is such a real-life endeavor. I mean, when we talk about faith, sometimes we talk about our quote-unquote spiritual life. 
I'm pretty convinced the Bible doesn't know what we're talking about because the entire thing, our entire life is, is sacred and our spiritual life transcends everything we do and it goes distinctly, according to this passage, right into the heart of the most intimate relationships that we have, our family. And Jesus is designed to be Lord over all of that. So the first way Luke tells us John will help people prepare for the coming of the Messiah is to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. I love the way that the brilliant theologian Fleming Rutledge summarizes this idea. She wrote, Just as Malachi, speaking of Malachi 4 verse 6, reaches the climax of this extraordinary universal prophecy, suddenly he narrows the focus to the most homely, most personal, most intimate circle we could possibly imagine. The destiny of the universe is found in the destiny of families. The most dreadful sign of a culture in decline and the approaching judgment of God is the rupture between parents and children. As the great hymn says, he's come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, and the curse is found even in family relationships. I mean, think about Christmas movies and the way that they play off family relationships. Movies like It's a Wonderful Life or Christmas Vacation or Home Alone or Four Christmases. I mean, family conflict is a theme in movies because it's a distinct theme of many of our lives. And Luke is suggesting that one of the ways that we prepare for the Christ is intentionally pursuing family. Would you write that down? That, that's one of the ways we repent. That's one of the ways we turn by intentionally pursuing family. A few observations first. There seems to be something unique about the role of fathers in the lives of their kids. Now, certainly the role of of mother is important and significant also in that scriptures aren't saying anything contrary to that. What they're doing is putting their finger on an issue. It appears that that the role of father was being neglected uh, when this passage of scripture was being written and indeed when Malachi's prophecy was given. Uh, Fathers in Roman antiquity were known to be harsh and abusive and and even sexually abusive at times to their kids. But friends, the, the reality is that things haven't changed all that much. We still live right now, today in 2020, in a a crisis of fatherhood. I mean, listen to some of these stats. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school students who drop out of high school come from fatherless homes. Young men who end up in prison are twice as likely to have come from a fatherless home. And if you don't think that that's enough, right now, 9.7 million children, about one in four children in the United States are growing up in a home without a father. Can I just take a moment and, and to share with you my hope and my vision is that church would be a place where the fatherless can find father figures, mentors, friends, to walk alongside of them, to show them the way, to build into their lives, and to help strengthen them for the road that's ahead, because people need that modeling in their 
life. And if you're a man and you're serving in our kids or student ministries, I just want to say thank you for helping us live this out. I mean, the truth of the matter is that God refers to himself as our Father. Jesus invites us to pray to God as our Father who art in heaven. God's design is that our earthly fathers would practice provision and protection and love in a way that would paint a picture for us to look at to see, oh, this is what my God is like. So to all the dads out there, and I'm preaching to myself also, Our kids need our provision, certainly, but it can't stop there. They also need our affection. They need to know that we care. They they need us to be attentive. They need our time. You know, I've heard it said that love is often spelled (laughs) T-I-M-E. And there's, there's so many families and so many dads in our church that are just doing an amazing job raising godly kids and, and doing it in a way that honors Jesus. And I just want to say, keep going. Keep going. God is with you and God is for you. The second thing, though, that we see in this text is that when there is relational strife between parents and their kids, The onus is on the parents to try their best to make things right when things have gone wrong. And I know that there's a ton of different stories and different reasons for relational strife and a lot of painful stories. But can I invite you, if there is some sort of division in your family, to practice what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So what could you do to be a peacemaker in your own family? Could you offer forgiveness? Could you accept forgiveness? Could you be the first person that reaches out? Could you start to maybe thaw out your heart in some ways? Certainly, protecting yourself from from getting hurt again, but taking a first step to reach out and say, as much as it depends on me, I want to do my best to repair this relationship. You know, during this Christmas season, our kids' ministry and student ministries are doing a number of things to help kids and parents connect and grow. And I just want to encourage you, reach out to them if That's something that we can come alongside you and help with. Visit our website. We'd love to get you more information about how to build into your kids spiritually. So after addressing our most intimate human relationships, our our families, Luke is going to tell us that John's going to call us to repentance in another area as well. And listen to what he continues to write in verse 17. It says, And the disobedient to the wisdom 
of the just. That's another turning that he's calling us to, to make in preparation for the Christ. And as you read that, at first glance, it might be hard to sort of pick up what Luke is saying, but I think the last word is the word that gives us the key to interpreting it correctly, just or justice. See, uh, John the Baptist will be one who calls out injustices where he sees them. He's in a long line of prophets who called the people of Israel to be a people who operated and led in justice. And we can see the prophets addressing this time and time again. Amos chapter 5 verses 21 and 24 may be some of the most clear where God says, rather than your worship, I want you to be people of justice. Here's the way Amos recorded it. I hate, I despise your festivals, says God. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's probably because Martin Luther King Jr. quoted that in his famous letter from Birmingham jail in 1963. See, when the prophets, including John the Baptist, talked about justice, they had in their mind the way that the powerful and the rich treated the poor and the powerless. See, oftentimes people that are in positions of power take advantage of those underneath them. They use bribery. They use dishonesty. They, they cheat. They may, may even use unpaid labor in order to make a greater prophet and the prophets called that out time and time again as being distinctly and definitively wrong. By way of contrast, justice means just the opposite, that those in positions of power treat those underneath them with honesty, with generosity, with respect. Yeah, it's this disobedience that John is calling out. And can I invite you to, to write this down if you're taking notes today? What is the repentance that prepares us for the Christ? Well, it's genuinely valuing humanity. To genuinely value humanity. And one of the reasons that John calls people to examine the way that they are treating and looking at other people is because if they're mistreating other people, they're going to be really uncomfortable around Jesus. <laughs> because he was going to come and he was going to call that out. Jesus coming was good news for the poor, according to Mary in her Magnifica that Luke records later on in this same chapter. Yeah, it's good news to the poor, but it's a threat to those in positions of power. See, Jesus certainly was the baby born in Bethlehem, but he would become the judge of all things at the end of time. And it's worth noting, friends, that the reason that God cares about justice is because God cares about people, that people are important to God. And God hates it when people are mistreated. It's the reason that one of the first things that John said, we read it earlier, is calling out the Pharisees and calling them, you brood of vipers. Now, in case you were wondering, that was not a compliment. He's saying to the Pharisees, you are taking advantage of, you're poisoning people, and they were doing it using religion. See, they were trying to uphold the law, but in doing so, they were trampling on the very thing the law was designed to create, which is a community flourishing with the shalom 
of God. I think C.S. Lewis captured this idea of justice well when he wrote this. In the moral sphere, every act of justice or charity involves putting ourselves in the other person's place and thus transcending our own competitive particularity. (laughs) Yeah, Luke's suggesting that to not do that is, quote, unwise and disobedient. So this begs the question, what does this look like in our day and our time right now? Because we still live in a world that's crying out for justice. The church for a long time have talked about, has talked about sins of omission and sins of commission. Uh, sins that we, we do and then sins that we participate in by our silence. Th- things that we avoid, o- o- omit. We, we just don't step in. And I wonder if we'd examine our own lives in light of the same. Maybe today you ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything that I'm not speaking up for, speaking out against, that you would want me to? And are there any ways that I'm treating people that aren't in line with your kingdom ethic, with your way, and with your heart? And maybe this Christmas season, you explore a few ways to push back against injustice. Maybe you choose to purchase half of your presents from fair trade or equitably sourced labor sites. Or or maybe, maybe you participate in some of the opportunities that you're going to have to be generous. Or maybe you support small local businesses rather than big box stores that, by the way, are absolutely flourishing in this pandemic while many of our local businesses are having to close their doors. I feel like that's a justice issue. Let's, let's step into that, church, and we can, we can help make a difference in those areas. But let's be people who practice justice. It's part of preparing for the Christ. And these are the two turnings that Luke is telling us John is going to call out to pursue family and to value humanity. In fact, will you write this down as we begin to close our time together? That preparation for Christ and for Christmas is focused on how we treat people. Listen to what a different John would say a number of years later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Here's what he wrote. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Don't you like how definitive John is? It's impossible. It's impossible to love God if you don't love the people around you. And that's exactly the message that John the Baptist would come to bring. It was exactly the way that he was calling people to prepare for the Christ. And it's the way that we today prepare for Christmas. We prepare to to receive him once again, to practice his presence, and to walk in his way with his heart. And the question before us today is, will we allow John to be our Advent forerunner as well? Will we, challenge, will we allow him to challenge us to, to make room, to prepare, and to ready our lives and our hearts to host the Messiah? See, I'm convinced that Jesus wants to meet with us this Christmas. The question is, are we ready to host him? 
Will we, will we prepare the meal? Will we, will we set the table? And will we do what Advent invites us to do? Wait in preparation to meet the Messiah. Remember, remember, readiness is essential for reception and repentance is the way that our hearts are readied. See, friends, in a season where inevitably some of your plans are going to get canceled, I promise you, it's 2020, it's going to happen. Some of your plans are bound to get canceled. Will you make sure that you prepare for the appointment that is sure to be kept? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So let's expect encounter with the God who is here and let's ready our hearts to meet with him. I want to invite you to just pause for a moment. I'm going to pray for us in just a second, but I just want to invite you to pause wherever you are. If you're on, a, on your couch or in, front of your t- or in front of your TV or watching on your computer, just pause. And will you ask the Lord if there's any place in your life that he wants you to repent in order to be ready to receive? Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we know that because of the situation that our world is in right now, that this Christmas will be different. But we want it to be different in a good way also. We want to we be ready to receive all that you want to pour into our lives. And so we would say to you, Father, we are ready. Make us ready. Lord, we want to repent. We want to rethink the way that we're thinking and the way that we're acting. If there's anything with family members that we need to make right, would you prompt us and empower us to make those things right? If there's any way that we're treating our fellow human beings in a way that doesn't honor the image of God that you've placed inside of them, would you call that to our attention and give us the faith and the boldness to repent and to change and to walk in a different way? And Lord, remind us that the way that we prepare is in the way that we treat people. So make us a people ready for your presence. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.